the raison d'etre of Bitcoin, the, uh, the innovation that occurred was the removal of counterparty risk. Like this idea that you ultimately can have full agency and sovereignty over accessing your money. Unfortunately, there are a lot of governance structures that, you know, maybe they have friction in being able to self-custody. If you're a large publicly traded company, you're not keeping all of your Bitcoin in a ledger in your desk drawer, right? But, but the ultimate point, especially for individuals, is that it allows for this sovereign distribution of the resources of the Bitcoin network in a way where you don't have to rely on a counterparty to make sure that you can access your money. Bitcoin can do more than just that. Bitcoin is more than just digital gold. It's programmable money. It allows you to do some simple things like and statements, or statements, time locks, signatures, and these allow you to make more involved governance structures in how you manage your Bitcoin. Walkware is proud to partner with Global X Digital, the premier US-based Bitcoin mining company. We've integrated their state-of-the-art mining facility with the Blockware Marketplace. Located just outside of Oklahoma City, this 320 megawatt site is powered by 100% renewable energy. We've just plugged in hundreds of brand new Antminer S19 XPs at their site, which you can purchase through the Blockware Marketplace and start mining in minutes. At 141 terahash, these machines are the most profitable ASICs currently available on the market. Posting rates begin as low as 7.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Listings on the marketplace are priced extremely competitively. And the best part, based on current mining dynamics, these machines will remain profitable through and beyond the 2024 halving. For more information, email sales at blockwaresolutions.com. Hey, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Rob and Becca from Anchor Watch. Guys, welcome. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, let's first start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Maybe we can start with Becca and then go to Rob. And, and how did you guys get into Bitcoin? Uh, sure. So uh, Becca Rubenfeld, I'm co-founder and COO of Anchor Watch. Uh, you know, I got into Bitcoin fairly recently compared to a lot of people uh, that I've come across in the space. I got in in 2019. So newish. Uh, and I actually came in purely from fiat mindset. I was trading Bitcoin specifically on Robinhood. Uh, so I was just swing trading. I didn't know anything about it. It was a super volatile asset that was great for, uh, you know, farming some fiat gains. Uh, and uh, I guess it was 2020 then. Uh, I happened across this new app, Clubhouse. Uh, and Clubhouse is where uh, I eventually met Rob. But in terms of kind of my education in Bitcoin, uh, I hopped into these into these Bitcoin rooms actually just to get trading alpha. That's all I was looking for. Uh, I had had the kind of stereotypical experience of I had been swing trading and taking some gains, taking some gains, and then the price took off uh, and didn't come back down. Uh, and I lost about two thirds uh, of what I had been accumulating. So, uh, you know, it was starting to move again. So I just thought I would pop in, see if I could learn a little bit more about what was happening specific to the price action. Uh, the clubhouse rooms ended up having who, all these guys who I, I was not at all familiar with at the time. 
Um, but, you know, I was NVK from CoinKite and Jimmy Song, Junseth, American Hoddle, Rob, uh, and just through the discussions that were happening in the room that I was trying to uh, just get trading alpha, I ended up just very quickly becoming orange-filled uh, and going down the rabbit hole. So. Very cool. Does Clubhouse even still exist? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a room going on right now with uh, American Hoddle and Junseth that we're just oh. talking about um, the weather and politics not five nice. seconds ago. So it's it's a smaller cohort of people than it was during the peak bull runs, but it's still around. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Cool. How about you, Rob? How did you get into Bitcoin? So I got into Bitcoin um, in 2013. Uh, my buddies were... Uh, I, had a, I had one buddy who was telling me that I need to get into this Bitcoin stuff because he knew I was a libertarian-minded gold freedom money kind of person uh i kind of dismissed it didn't really have time to look into it a couple months go by my buddies start mining dogecoin ironically like haha like we're taking this really serious thing and we're having fun with it and then i started mining dogecoin i was playing around with it downloading i was like oh this is interesting like i was living in new york city at the time and i looked and i said oh there's a bitcoin meetup new york city bit devs it was uh, meeting 13th they used to hold them twice a month so they were just starting to get new york city bit devs going I, st I walked in, it was like 20 people, and immediately I was just very much blown away. Talk about jumping into the deep end was reviewing pull requests and looking at C++ code and talking about Bitcoin and consensus and the protocol and mining. And I realized that there were a lot of people who I very quickly sussed out were very smart and very driven. And that kind of pulled me in from like a gravitational force. So uh, it's what inspired me to learn how to program. Uh, I went to that meetup probably for a year, year and a half regularly, and then would pop in occasionally. And at that point, started going down my own path of, at the time, Reddit was really the great place to get information. This is 2014, 2015. Learning more, playing around with Bitcoin. Um, it was really before hardware wallets were really widely distributed. So just messing around with, you know, different software wallets at the time and tinkering around with it. And ever since, I just kept close tabs on it. I was working as a consultant and a data scientist at IBM and just getting a feel for how this technology works and getting a deeper appreciation for it following along during the fork wars on twitter uh i was i was definitely more of a passive observer even though i'd been learning a lot about bitcoin for a long time and uh that was really and then just to tie the stories together uh pandemic happens i get an invite from brian harrington who's another bitcoiner to get on clubhouse back then it was really hard to get invites it was invite only and every uh Wednesday, they would have a Bitcoin room. Alex Thorne started it and Jitsu and then also Terrence Yang all started this Bitcoin club. And they would have like two, 3,000 people in the room. And if you ever want to get uh, feedback from the internet, just start saying things that are wrong. So immediately I'd start raising my hand and be like, eh, that's not how that works. No, no, no. And then talking about like, oh, you should take your seed phrase and split it in half. And, put, and I was like, no, 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 no. Not, not how this works, right? So uh, very quickly just found a platform to talk about more of the technical nuances of Bitcoin. And from there, met Becca. And uh, yeah, that was kind of where our stories intersected. Very cool. Yeah, it's interesting how like the different platforms that people like communicate about Bitcoin has changed over time, like Reddit, mm -hmm. then Twitter, then Clubhouse, and back to Twitter. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a reflection of the culture too at the time, uh, how they all have different vibes and like etiquette. Um, we often describe, American Hoddle came up with this, that um, if you go to Twitter spaces, it's kind of like speaking on a panel at a Bitcoin conference, whereas Clubhouse is the bar 
after the event is over. It's much more casual, right? And there's interesting implications in how UX of tech informs kind of etiquette and behavior among other participants. But yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how the conversations evolved over time. And now Reddit, I'm never there anymore. It's I find it to be relatively low signal, just me personally. And I had never spent any time on Twitter. I had an account for a long time, but I'm actually just really starting to use Twitter in the last year or two uh, because of doing Anchor Watch and, and needing to get a better handle on kind of what's happening out there in the community. Uh, but for me, it was entirely Clubhouse. And the opportunity to actually engage in dialogue um, I think accelerates learning so, so much. So, I mean, you talk about the OGs and you have to give them credit for guys like Rob, other people who have been around for 10 years, they had to work really hard to learn, right? You had to dive into forums. You had to pour through technical information. If you wanted to learn about Bitcoin, you had to put in, you know, so much effort and time. Not that I didn't put in effort and time, but it was, it was very much, uh, in a in a more approachable way, because, you know, whether it was Jimmy or June Seth or uh, any one of these dozens of really well-regarded experts, uh, you know, they could be explaining something. And I could be like, hold up, hold up. Like, yeah, but why this? Like, why that? Like, that doesn't make sense. Right. And so to be able in my own language to challenge things, to to push for a different or a better explanation or maybe somebody's explanation was great, but it didn't land with me. And so to have, you know, two or three or four people who all right in that moment would, you know, add on an additional analogy or an additional explanation. Um, you know, I just I think it was an incredible opportunity moment in time. Uh, it allowed me and others who really got educated on that platform to get a whole new experience in terms of how to get educated in Bitcoin. I, th I think it was really accelerated. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It's like the different narratives that people have created around Bitcoin have like changed and evolved over time. And whether it's Twitter, Clubhouse, Reddit, like we're trying to figure out what sticks with different cohorts and different things stick for different people. So I thought it was a fantastic point. Mm -hmm. um, some people in my audience, I think most are probably, you know, familiar with self-custody, the idea of self-custody. Some may not do it, some may do it. Um, I guess from your perspective, you know, if someone hasn't already self-custody their Bitcoin, and either of you guys can start with this, why should they do that very like soon? The, uh, I'll take it brief to high level, and Becca, please jump in there. Um, the, my, my thought here is that the, the raison d'etre of Bitcoin, the, uh, the innovation that occurred was the removal of counterparty risk, right? This idea that you ultimately can have full agency and sovereignty over accessing your money. And uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of governance structures that you know maybe they have friction in being able to self-custody. If you're a large publicly traded company, you're not keeping your you know all of your Bitcoin in a ledger in your desk drawer, right? But but the ultimate point, especially for individuals, is that it allows for this sovereign distribution of the resources of the Bitcoin network in a way where you don't have to rely on a counterparty to make sure that you can access your money. And that's fundamentally the innovation, uh, especially because it's software, you can do that at scale. I couldn't take, you know, if I had a million dollars of gold, like that's a much more complicated logistical question than a million dollars of Bitcoin, right? 
And uh, that's ultimately, I think, the core innovation here is that I can have access to my money. No one's going to, you know, that's how you also get the assurances that no one's going to devalue or maybe uh, have a counterparty like an exchange, like go bankrupt or go insolvent or be caught up in fraud. Right. Like that's your that's your, you know, your hedge in systemic risk. And, you know, maybe if I'd add on from a really like current practical level. Right now, custody is incredibly important, just specifically because of what Rob mentioned, the counterparty risk. Ultimately, this is super young technology, right? Has not been around that long. As a result, the various players uh, that have emerged through the years as service providers, uh, you know, while there are really great FSPs, uh, you know, obviously there have been a number uh, of custodians and, and other uh, holders of Bitcoin keys who have just spelled disaster for their customers. And so at this point, uh, you know, even if you're newish to Bitcoin, you're not super technically savvy at this point, just from a practical level, you really need to get a comfort level with that. Uh, you know, the industry as a whole you know, maybe the Bitcoin industry, Bitcoin specific companies, uh, by and large, really good actors. But if you expand, uh, if you're coming into the space, maybe from the broader crypto space. So there's all these other uh, providers out there, you know, in large, you shouldn't trust others with your Bitcoin keys. So, uh, you know, with Anchor Watch, we're trying to provide technology and services that are a solution to that. Uh, but even before you get to our solution. I mean, just really understanding the risk that is at hand if you don't start learning about self-custody and why it's really important. Yeah, 100%. And it seems like in, you know, self-custody 2.0 or like the next level of self-custody might be, you know, using something like Miniscript, which I'm guessing a lot of the audience has probably not heard of. Rob, can you tell us what is Miniscript? Happy to. Yeah. Uh, I guess first I didn't introduce myself. My name is Rob Hamilton, co-founder and CEO of AnchorWatch. Uh, Miniscript is, uh, to take one step back, the way Bitcoin works is you lock it with a script. And you, your audience may have heard of a single sig where you have one key, you have that one key, you can unlock the funds. A next stage of that may be, say, a multi-sig, where maybe you have three keys and two of the three can sign, or th five keys and three of the keys can sign, right? What Miniscript does is it was a project developed out of the, the Blockstream research team uh, with Andrew Polster, Peter Will, and Sanket. Uh, they uh, took this idea of Bitcoin can do more than just that. Bitcoin is more than just digital gold. It's programmable money. So what we, we can do is we can add more interesting custody arrangements. And ultimately, without getting too deep in the weeds, it allows you to do some simple things like and statements, or statements, time locks, signatures, and these allow you to make more involved governance structures in how you manage your Bitcoin. A very simple example, Joe, is something we like to call a key hierarchy. So let's say it's a two or three multi-sig, it's everyone on this call. Let's say, Joe, you're the customer and you don't wanna hold a single sig at your house, maybe you do that as too risky, but what you would like is maybe a two of three multi-sig. Now, in a traditional legacy multi-sig setup, I would have a key, Becca would have a key, you would have a key. Your concern is, wait a second, if it's two of three, Rob and Becca can run off with the money. What Miniscript allows you to do is allows you to say, you know what, Joe, your key must sign, plus either myself or Becca. 
right? And this is a very simple example, and it can get much more involved, but that's a straightforward example of taking these primitives within Bitcoin in a way that does not require a fork. It works today, and uh, it allows you to have these more advanced custody governance structures with how you manage your Bitcoin. So if we take Rob's example of that key hierarchy, and we then take it just one level deeper. So we'll, we'll still keep it really simple, but just one level more. So that key hierarchy, Joe, your key must sign than one of Rob's or my keys. Now we've really mitigated a lot of fear. So now you've got the, the benefits of the dispersed keys. You've got the benefit of your key being kind of the senior key in the key hierarchy. But now you have a new fear. The new fear is what if your key is damaged or lost? What if you get hit by a bus? Uh, you know, what happens then? So that's where we introduce time locks. So that's one of the other main uh, features that of Miniscript that uh, we can use with Bitcoin script. And so what a time lock does is it actually unlocks a spending condition. So rather than locking something, it's really saying after a set amount of time, we're unlocking an additional way to spend your Bitcoin. So in, in our example here, we could say after a year, it's going to a traditional two of three. So any two of three. And that way, if something had happened to your key, Rob and I could come together and support you. Or maybe it goes to a one of three. Maybe after a year, we introduce actually a fourth key that wasn't there. And it's an emergency only key. Right. And so these are the things that uh, we're really highlighting with Miniscript. And it all kind of goes back to just what Rob said. This is programmable money. Right. So the existing custody industry, Bitcoin custody industry, has really developed in the pattern of traditional custodians. So if you think about the bar of gold, if you were you know, holding on to bar of gold as, as a store of value, you really just have two options. You can hold on to this bar of gold yourself. You can hide it under your bed, you know, uh, take care of it yourself and, and take on that risk yourself. Or you can pay a fee to a gold custodian who will store it on your behalf. So they'll take their fee and maybe with that fee, they'll uh, have super ultra security, but you do have to hand them all of your bar of gold. With Miniscript, you know, it's actually, it's not binary. It's not one or the other. It's, it's really a combination. We're all holding custody. And then the last thing that is super cool about Miniscript is after a certain amount of time, you know, during, uh, you know, the initial period of a Miniscript vault, it can be supported. Rob and I can be here to support you. But at, later on, you can have it returned to a state to fully sovereign without Rob and I giving you your Bitcoin back. So if if it was gold, right, like you would have to say like, hey, custodian, thanks for taking care of my gold bar for the last five years. I think I'm good now. Could you go ahead and return that to me? And you have to trust that the custodian is going to do that, that they, in fact, still have the gold to start with, uh, that they're good actors and they'll return it to you with Miniscript. Uh, as your kind of modality of custody, you can actually program that into the vault to start with, and it will return to, to fully sovereign uh, after a preset amount of time. Yeah, I mean, to me, this technology seems very cool because I feel like a lot of people want freedom, but then they don't necessarily want the responsibility that comes with that freedom, mm -hmm. which is probably like 90% of the population, if not more. Mm -hmm. And this kind of enables you to build some very cool different wallet type 
vaults with collaborative custody that make it a lot more easy on your mind. You can sleep well at night and still be sovereign. And still be ultra secure. Yeah. Right? So you don't really have to give up. What Miniscript allows us to do is actually get the best of both worlds. So you get the ultra secure without completely giving up your sovereignty. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. So I guess, do you guys think that this is going to be like the technology that really makes it easier for the world to self-custody Bitcoin? Because I get a lot of push pushback from people like, oh, Bitcoin's very cool. But obviously, like the next level is, you know, it's all going to be stored at Coinbase or Fidelity or BlackRock. Do you think that something like this is going to make it to where it's obvious that you should at least hold like one of your keys in some sort of vault? Hey, everyone. This week, I want to talk about stamp seed this is very cool metal plate where you can literally stamp your bitcoin seed phrase with this hammer that they sell you into this metal plate this is a must-have for all bitcoin holders if you have taken self-custody of your bitcoin you want to make sure you've recorded your seed phrase on something that is fireproof waterproof and time resistant this is a great product for Bitcoiners who have taken self-custody and want that extra level of security and resiliency to store their Bitcoin. So if you are interested in this product, definitely check out stampseed.com. Use code BLOCKWARE15 for 15% off the entire website. I would say, yes, it makes it much uh, easier for you to have some control without it just being, hey, here's all of the keys. And if you miss something up, there's no refund. Sorry. Right. So what we're doing at Anchor Watch is championing this idea of multi-institutional custody. And specifically, just I didn't realize we haven't talked about it yet. What we're doing at Anchor Watch is uh, offering a regulated insurance product around Bitcoin in custody as compared to maybe having a custodian that has one limited policy coverage for all of their customers, having you specifically your Bitcoin being insured directly. And this idea of multi-institutional custody goes back to that extension of the bar in gold is there's no reason why you have to keep all of the risk concentrated at one entity and one player. And this technology allows for this easier distribution of uh, keys, which allows for distribution of risk in a way that's intelligently able to embed governance on like on the Bitcoin blockchain, right? And for a very simple example to what Becca said earlier about this idea of being able to return sovereign control, let's say you have an insurance policy with AnchorWatch. After your insurance policy expires and everything's above board and we're no longer holding risk, it's actually administrative overhead for us to try and like give you back your money. We'd rather, it's actually better for us and better for you from a value perspective to just let you take your money and withdraw it. You're no longer working with us. You don't want to work with us. We're not holding your money hostage. We can just release the funds to you. And by release the funds to you, it's actually just the, the Bitcoin network releasing the funds. We aren't flipping a switch and saying, okay, Joe can have his money back again, right? And so I think this is a way for making custody easier. And there's And what's really been... Um, making really great speed and progress is the actual integration of different hardware wallets that do this. So additionally, in theory, like you could have, you know, a phone key or some sort of like very easy approachable if you're talking mass, like hundreds of millions of people. But for the technology as it sits today and being able to have secure features, I'm holding a ledger here. Ledger has Miniscript support. The Cult Card MK4 has Miniscript support. The Spectre DIY has Miniscript support. The Blockstream Jade, I think, is working on it imminently, as well as the Bitbox O2. The ecosystem of hardware wallets around this 
is getting to a critical mass now to have a distribution of risk in different hardware wallets and making it so whatever form factor you're comfortable with, you can have access to your Bitcoin. Well, you all, you know, you said, will, will people be, will BlackRock be custodying, you know, will versus self-custody? Uh, the scheme that we've been describing, we like to use the term negative control. So the idea of handing over your Bitcoin keys to a custodian is complete control, right? With Miniscript and the way that we're running our business is, is via the concept of negative control, which is we're, we're here to prevent bad things from happening. So we're holding keys while we have an insurance policy that's active and we hold liability, we're a required key signer in, the, in that vault. So that's programmed in there. You're covered by us, we have liability. What that allows us to do are compliance and governance activities. So you wanna spend Bitcoin, cool, let's make sure it's within uh, kind of the circumstances that you told us to expect when you signed up for the policy. Let's make sure you are really you, that you're not under duress. Uh, and if anything seems off, you know, we can just hold off on signing for you, like on behalf of you, like just to protect you, we're gonna, we're gonna hold off for a moment and we're gonna do some more research. We're gonna attempt to contact you in a couple of different ways. We want for the sake of, of your Bitcoin to be extra sure that everything is on the up and up. And if so, of course, we'll sign off and uh, you, know, you can spend your Bitcoin. What we can never do is unilaterally control your Bitcoin. So in terms of the, the future of custody, yes, I really do think that Miniscript is going to be uh, a major differentiator in terms of just the custody options out there. Um, at the end of the day, the idea of, of just handing over all your Bitcoin keys when, when you don't actually have to, when it doesn't need to work that way, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense because Joe, by you holding a key, uh, within your vault, you actually also have some control, right? Like you're preventing us from bad behavior. You're preventing the other key holders from acting unilaterally. And ultimately, once you kind of click it all together in your head, um, wanting to go back to a more binary option doesn't make uh, a ton of sense in terms of the loss of security there. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's definitely something I'm excited about. You mentioned the insurance product that you guys are building. How much do you expect that would like cost for someone that's trying to secure, you know, a large portion of their savings, whether it's like a company or high net worth individual? Do you guys, do you guys have an idea of, of the price quite yet? Yeah, we are still finalizing pricing. So uh, we're a couple of months out from actually selling uh, policies, but we're expecting premiums to be uh, between about 50 basis points and a point annually. Um, on the value of Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, based on your specific circumstances, uh, we'll kind of drive where in that range you end up. Um, but yeah, that's where that's where we think we are headed. And that would include the use of Trident, the Miniscript vault as well. So it's it's all inclusive of both the regulated insurance and the software as well. Nice, very cool. And I guess, Rob, is it easy to use on hardware wallets like i know one thing that i like about you know single sig multi-sig is it's easy to like verify an address on a hardware wallet is the process the same or similar with miniscript yes so directly the initial setup 
the first time you set up a vault, you have to review the details like on the cold card screen or on the ledger screen. And you're making sure like, hey, is this what I'm expecting? After you do that, let's call it an initial handshake. It's identical to regular multi-sig. You can review the PSBT. You can say, hey, I'm sending this much to this address. The flows are identical. So there's a momentary bit of extra work up front to make sure, hey, what kind of vault is this hardware wallet entering? Is it the one I'm expecting? And once you do that initial approval, everything on that handshake kind of continues going forward to allow you to do anything else like you would for any other spend. Very cool. Um, I've also seen, this is a uh, kind of funny thing I've seen on Twitter, I guess, the script versus MPC. Mm. What is, so we talked about mini script. What even is MPC and what's this big debate going on? So MPC is an acronym that stands for money poorly custodied. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's it, it, multi-party computing. So uh, at a very high level, there are different ways in which you can distribute risk. Uh, what we've been talking about with Miniscript is a script approach, as you can imagine from the name, where let's say that two of three example again, on chain, the way the money is secured is, Joe, you have a public key that you then produce a signature for and sign. I have a public key. Becca has a public key. Uh, so you have one entity, one signer, one key. What multi-party computing does is it says, okay, we're going to put one public key on chain and then off chain, we're going to do this coordination of signing that maps to the single public key. Now, there's a couple of different implementations of this. Um, this goes a little bit into details of uh, Bitcoin up until Taproot used ECDSA, elliptic curve digital signature algorithm, which was just the thing that um, Satoshi had available at the time. Funny little fact is that there was another signature implementation called Schnorr but it was patented. So Satoshi could not include it in the original client, but with the Taproot update, we added Schnorr signature as a way of actually signing Bitcoin transactions. And what Schnorr does without getting too much in the math and cryptography is it makes it really, really easy for us to add our keys together to be able to commit to transactions. So you get um, some efficiencies with less signature space on chain. So it's um, smaller transaction fees. And you also get some obfuscation and privacy because on chain to anyone not involved in the transaction, it looks like a single key. So the uh, team script versus team NPC uh, meme war that started between uh, myself and Reindahl, uh was about the trade-offs and the different approaches. And our hope is just that everyone can learn something new about Bitcoin along the way as they kind of see the the Twitter banter and the memes going back and forth. I like it. It's funny. Um, it's good stuff. Are there other ways like in the future that self-custody products can improve? Like I've, I've listened to some stuff on the Vera podcast about other potential like soft forks that could mm -hmm. happen on Bitcoin. Can you, Rob, you maybe explain some of those? Sure. So just for the audience, a soft fork is a change in the Bitcoin rules that are uh, in a way you're, you're changing functionality. So this is how upgrades are typically done. This is how SegWit was done in 2017 around the time of the block size wars. It was also what happened um, about two years ago with Taproot. It, you know, these protocol upgrade changes. There were earlier ones back in 2015 and 16 for the time locking functionality that we use in Lightning Network as well as in Miniscript. Uh, all to be said though, 
the kinds of upgrades, there are a couple that are floating around right now in conversations. One of them, uh, James and Byrne um, has been championing or like set up the proposal for, which is OpVault. And it's the idea that you can have a transaction and you can actually have a vaulting function governed on chain. So let's say, Joe, you had some money and an address. Let's even call it a single SIG. You sign, you spend. You What you do is you say, hey, I want to spend to this address. And what you do is you actually move the funds into this intermediary staging address. And that provides a window for you to have reactive security. And what that means is you can actually see this pending spend and being like, wait a second, I didn't authorize that spend. I'm going to hit the emergency button and you can sweep the funds to a different cold storage address. Ideally, ones with different keys, because if someone maliciously signed and moved your money, your current keys are compromised. So this is the idea you can have emergency backup keys to sweep the funds to. And that allows you to have this reactive element uh, to be able to move the funds. But let's say I have a one week time lock. And so it sits there for a week and then it completes the transaction if I don't interrupt it. Right. So that's op fault. Up CTV, which is BIP 119, originally put forward by Jeremy Rubin, is another version of this. This is in the library of covenants. You're uh, restricting how the money can be sent to someone else. Uh, and Op CTV is a, let's just call it a larger umbrella of a way of restricting how funds can move. And those are the two, I would say, most straightforward ways from react from different security um, elements that we can get on chain that would allow us to have different functionality, like uh, to help with self-custody. Definitely. Would you say that like those proposals complement Miniscript and like kind of what you guys are already building or are they just completely separate and are kind of irrelevant? Yeah, I, I, the answer is directly yes, complementary, right? Because even if you're securing funds, you wanna have, think of it in the sense of um, you wanna, I'm trying to think of a metaphor on the fly. Let's say you start your car. How you turn on the engine is actually the mini script element of like, okay, what keys where and what sequencing, right? And let's say you're in a parking garage and what OpVault does is there's someone at the gate before you leave the parking garage and says, are you are you actually allowed to go? Let, let's put you over here while you know we wait for the time lock or the, the vaulting to happen, right? Or restricting on where you send payments to. You could have a company treasury that maybe has different board of directors and financial officers that are all unlocking the funds, but then maybe those funds are pre-committed just to employee payroll, right? So in that sense, they're complementary, especially too, because in, in all of these, it's like using OpVault and you have this emergency recovery that you have to send the funds to. The question then is, is okay, well, how do you manage the emergency recovery address, right? Like how is that constructed? And that can use Miniscript as well as a way to have this like distribution of custody and keys. Yeah, very cool. This might be a, a difficult or interesting question for you guys, but what is, and maybe we could start, well, either one, you can take it. Whoever wants to take it can if take it. If it's difficult, but... Becca can take it. <laughs> yeah, um, it what, what is your most unpopular opinion about Bitcoin? I know we're all on Bitcoin Twitter. People do say Bitcoin Twitter is an echo chamber, and I would say to some extent that's pretty accurate. Um, what is your most unpopular opinion when it comes to, to Bitcoin? Um... I mean, uh, I one, one. one is a little self-serving because in a way it was a previously held one that Miniscript helps to solve. So previously uh, it was just the concept of self-custody and how it happens. You know, I was, I had gotten my first single SIG set up and I'm, I'm sitting on my floor like hammering into a piece of steel and it was just I thought it was like buffoonish, right? Like I was trying to picture 
convincing my father to move money into this asset class. And I was like, you know, and then you order, you know, some stamps and a hammer and, and like just buffoonish. Right. And so I was like, man, I know counterparty risk is real, but like my dad has to be able to buy this at Fidelity. Like it just, and, and store it there. Like, it's just not going to happen otherwise. Um, and so, you know, uh, like I said, a little self-servingly, like I'd like to think that our product is is a way uh, to get away from those two binary options. Um, so yeah, I would say uh, that was what one of mine. Uh, but I'll throw it to Rob and see what he's got. Um, I guess my strongly held belief that many don't agree with when it comes to Bitcoin is if Bitcoin will succeed we believe bitcoin will succeed in the event it does succeed as a global financial asset there will be an insurance market so the entire company is a challenge to maybe orthodoxy within bitcoin and i view this from several lenses um the implementation details are yet to be fully seen and fleshed out live in market right but but the idea that you can insure a bar of gold that you can transfer risk these are all things that actually increase adoption in Bitcoin because we've actually talked to people who maybe um, have Bitcoin exposure. Maybe they invest in Bitcoin companies or maybe, um, you know, they, they hold some GPTC, but they, they, they mechanically within their current company structures actually self-custody. Like they're not allowed to. Either their auditors won't approve of it, um, you know, their, their fund mandates won't allow them to. And the idea of insurance transferring risk is something that's so fundamental to just capitalism and markets in general. To say that Bitcoin is beyond the concept of insurance just kind of um, stands in the face of just how free enterprise economics works, right? Um, especially when there's a lot of businesses that charge custody fees and maybe have little to no insurance coverage, it seems strictly a better option to actually have capital markets backstopping things and actually being able to provide assurances to customers uh, that there will be insurance. And that's something that Beck and I have been working very hard for a bit over a year now in trying to make that vision a reality. And I think it's something that once we're live uh, later this year, um, we will be able to kind of show a different way of, you know, using Bitcoin as a financial asset. That one, uh, Rob and I are very much aligned <laughs> on the importance of insurance. I think one that Rob and I maybe still butt heads on a little bit um, is how Bitcoin will scale when it needs to scale, um, you know, fee market, things like that. You know, I come from a scaled business, a huge corporate background uh, is how I spent the entirety of my career uh, up till now. And, you know, with that scale in mind, like the Bitcoin ecosystem is itty bitty, like it's, it's so tiny. It's so, so tiny, right? And so when we talk about one, not just the number of entrants uh, on the number of Bitcoin owners, so there's that, but then like, you know, our aspirational kind of use of Bitcoin and how it'll uh, infiltrate into every aspect of the economy and spend and just every, every area of money, right? And in order to do that, you know, Bitcoin simply cannot handle the volume of transactions that are required. And so, uh, you know, Rob can push back on me a little bit, but sometimes I like, I'll be like, yeah, well, you know, if there isn't an appropriate scaling solution, like Bitcoin 
Bitcoin will die, right? Because like the that vision for it that we have of infiltrating all aspects of the economy can't work if fees are in today's dollars, hundreds or thousands of dollars per transaction. It's impossible. Uh, and and so I draw like a very firm for myself, for my own mental model, like a very black and white uh, line of I don't know if it's lightning or lightning and a combination of other scaling solutions, maybe scaling solutions that haven't even been invented yet. But one way or the other, there will need to be appropriate scaling solutions or I really don't believe Bitcoin can be successful in the way we want it to be. I'll just be brief and say that a consequence of the fork, uh, the block size wars and not choosing to increase the block size had a very explicit uh, consequence, downstream consequence in that you can't have everyone in the world holding layer one private keys for Bitcoin because at seven transactions per second, you're going to have it, it just doesn't scale to Becca's point. So you're going to have to have more creative scaling solutions. And uh, ultimately, I think that lightning is a good uh, initial starting place, but I don't think it's where the conversation ends. Um, there's things um, like uh, I haven't gone too deep into it yet, but uh, Barack's like ARC uh, implementation. I know it has some liquidity constraints on it, but I think keeping a very open mind for how do we actually get additional entrants to be able to have some control over their money is going to be a necessary part of the financial infrastructure for this larger set of adoption. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, do you guys think we'll have another like scaling fork war again or, or, or no, you think we're past I, that? So, I mean, I think the most likely outcome and in, in my imagination are a variety of scaling solutions for different use cases, right? So, you know, maybe lightning is for small scale transactions. Maybe something else is for, uh, asset titles. Um, you know, I don't think you have to go to war and end up with a clear winner. I actually think there should be a number of different scaling solutions that all plug into or peg to L1. And L1, if Bitcoin is as successful as we believe it can be, uh, L1 would be really limited to enormous, you know, cross-government, cross like large bank transactions, things way up here, and then all these different solutions, potentially kind of in their own lane, um, would be plugging in at different points. That's yeah. how I view it. No, I think that I think that's right. And additionally, you have things like Fetty, right? Having Fediments mm -hmm. and this idea of having a, it's a way of, it's referred to as second party custody. You have this way of um, batching transactions where you can have many participants with eCash within a Fediment, but then there's one, there's a few addresses on chain. And then recurringly, there's like a batching that happens through the Fediment. I think that's one way of, you know, today being able to offer that solution. But largely agree, yeah, we're going to have to get more creative in treating and making the block size as efficiently used as possible to have as most economic density for the uh, activity that's being conducted on the Bitcoin network for it to scale. And we'll see how new solutions emerge over time to help support that. 100%. Yeah, it's always interesting because... You know, when fees are low, everyone's like, oh my gosh, Bitcoin's insecure. And then when fees are high, everyone's like, wait, you know, Bitcoin can't scale. And it's like, which one is it? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I think this is probably a good spot to wrap it up. Where can the audience, if they're interested in what you guys are building, like, do you guys have a wait list, a website? Where can they find out more? 
Yep, they can uh, go over to angerwatch.com. Uh, there's a sign up there uh, for waitlist, and we'll be sending out information um, in very short order. The next maybe two weeks or so, website will get a refresh uh, with a bunch of articles, a lot more information about the insurance itself. Uh, so with just a little bit of patience, there will be a lot more detail out. Um, and then, of course, you can always reach out to Rob and myself on any of the social media. Uh, I'm Becca at AnchorWatch.com. Rob is Rob at AnchorWatch.com. Uh, any, yep. Anywhere else, Rob? That you we can... also have our Twitter handles. I um, also the AnchorWatch Twitter handle. Um, my Twitter handle is Rob One Ham. Um, email, uh, Twitter, great places to get a hold of me, and you know, always happy to you know have a conversation with someone who's interested about what we're building. <laughs> nice, I like it. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming on. This is awesome. Really enjoyed it.